Voyage. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. My name is Gordon Barker, and 49 years ago, today, my plane was shot down in Vietnam, and I was one of three survivors. The way I ended up in Vietnam was kind of convoluted. I joined the Air Force in 1968, and after three years, I was diagnosed with cancer of the thyroid, and I had to leave the Air Force with a full 100% disability. I spent 18 months as a civilian, and about halfway through that, a friend of mine informed me that the Air Force was taking cancer patients back if they could pass a physical. So I applied for the program. It took them another nine months to make a decision. I was in Paris when I found out that the Air Force wanted me to take another physical and I would be returned to full active duty. I wanted to be a fully rated navigator, which meant combat. I did not want to take a, a soft spot from somebody else because I once had cancer and I had to take thyroid pills for the rest of my life. 18 months after I was retired, I was sent back into the Air Force as a rated navigator. My duty assignment was AC-130 gunships, and I was supposed to be a sensor operator. But my first love was fire control, and I did so well in the training that they allowed me to continue as a fire control officer, even though I was very junior and had no flying experience. Fire control officer is, is one who uses the computing system in order to aim the weapon system. It's an analog computer, so it requires a lot of mental acuity from the operator, unlike the digital computers that we're familiar with today. And you also set the order of battle, which means you determine what targets are eligibly hit, which are not. Uh, which sensors you want hot, which targets you want to attack first, and how you wish to attack it. When we roll wings left, as a fire control officer, I control a 14-man crew. They do exactly what I tell them. I am in total charge of that crew and that aircraft, and that's why they don't like junior officers in that position. But I was very good at what I did, so I was accepted, and that's how I got to Vietnam. When I first arrived in Southeast Asia, it was in Uban Rashatani, which is Eastern Thailand, 44 miles from the Mekong River. And it's jungle. It is extremely hot. I walked off an air-conditioned C-141, which was 65 degrees, and I walked into unbelievably bright sunshine, 115 degrees, 99% relative humidity, and not a cloud in the sky, and the smell of Agent Orange everywhere. It permeated everything that we did. And by the time I took two steps, my uniform was totally soaked through and through. It was very uncomfortable. And I asked myself, I asked for this? <laughs> this was my daily life in Vietnam. Normally, I would go to bed around eight, nine o'clock in the morning. 
because we did mo almost all our flying at night. And I would get up about four or five o'clock in the afternoon and then go to the O Club, grab breakfast, go to the base ops and find out what I was flying and when I was flying it. Once we got our frag orders, I only took the first part of the brief because I was the fire control officer and I had to get to the airplane ahead of everybody else in order to bring up the inertial nav system and nobody could walk on the airplane. That airplane would be 140, 145 degrees and you had to sit there in the booth waiting for this, this thing to align and then once it did, you would punch a button which would set it and then people could walk on, they could turn on the equipment, the air conditioner would come on and it would be, it would be much more endurable. I always carried extra water bottles because of that. And then we would go fly the mission. Missions lasted about four and a half hours. And normally we'd come back. Everything that we did was taped at my position. I had a, a, a small 12, 13 inch monitor, which recorded everything that I said on my input. Now I normally kept infrared up there so I could look just to my right and see the TV operator who was less than two and a half feet from me. And then I would just direct what we were going to do, how we were going to do it, depending on what the mission was. And then we come back, they would take the tape that I made, they would put it on this gigantic screen and then we'd see what we actually hit that, that night. The mission I was on was a truck hunting mission in the Oshawa Valley. The Oshawa Valley was the most dangerous place in all of Southeast Asia outside of North Vietnam. And it was highly guarded by the enemy because it was basically their, their home away from home. So they had all their defenses in place there. When you went into this particular area, you always expected a lot of anti-aircraft and the best of their defensive positions. What you hear next is my best recollection of what was said on the plane prior to the crash. I'm sitting in the booth aboard an AC-130 gunship. Those of us in the booth are the four sets of eyes that aim the 20mm and 40mm weapons on the enemy, on the ground, thousands of feet below. It is my job as the FCO to determine the best sensor to use, the order of battle, and to electronically aim the weapon system. The booth is an 11 by 7 room strapped amidships to the floor of the aircraft. It contains four crew positions, the infrared or IR located forward left, the Black Crow operator or BC located forward right, the TV operator or TV located aft right, and myself, the fire control officer or FCO located aft left. Right now I'm the only one aboard the airplane. Part of my crew duties are to align the inertial nav system or INS which takes 45 minutes. No one is allowed aboard the airplane until the gyros align to our current position over the face of the earth. I'm sweating profusely because the temperature is 130 degrees Fahrenheit and I must stay quietly in my seat. Finally, I see the three green lights and place the INS in the operational mode. I inform the crew chief over the interphone that it is now safe to board the airplane. He immediately switches on the booth's air conditioner which will cool the booth to 65 degrees within five minutes. The cool and dry fresh air feels wonderful. Several minutes later, the remainder of the 15-man crew are all aboard. BC and IR enter the booth and go past me and take their seats. The TV is the last to enter and closes the booth door behind him as he takes his seat next to me. 
Beside the pilot, he's the only one I know personally on this crew. We flew ten missions together while defending the city of Anlok during the spring offensive, which ended six weeks earlier. It is early evening of June 18th, 1972. It takes the men in the booth four minutes to bring up their equipment. We can hear on interphone the remainder of the crew going through their checklists. Our mission is to proceed to the Asho Valley in order to interdict all movement of any kind. In the Asho, if it moves, we kill it. No questions asked. Hey, good to see you again. Yeah, same here. You and the pilot are the only guys I know on this crew. We missed the crew briefing. Captain said we're a compilation of five different crews. Wet season. A lot of guys have taken their mid-tour leaves. This is my first time flying with the captain. Yeah, me too. We're good friends, though. And hoochmates. He's sharp. Engaged. He's getting married when he returns stateside. I've seen pictures of his fiance. <laughs> I'm surprised he hasn't gone AWOL yet. He's completely loyal to her. His regular table navigator told me he's a great pilot. Let's hope so, because now he's an instructor. Ten minutes later, Spectre 11 takes off. At 8.28 local time, we enter the western portion of the Osho Valley. Hey, when are you showing me pictures of your fiance? Only my favorite crewmen get to see her. Woo! I'd take that personally. You should. That was the pilot. He gave as good as he got in the trash talk on board. Gordon said you're an instructor now? Oh, they'll let anyone fly these things. Ten minutes after that... I got a mover. Put BC in the computer. BC set. Heading 065. Heading 065. Target in sight. IR in the computer. Take IR guidance. IR in the computer. TV has the target. TV in the computer. Take TV guidance. TV in the computer. Number three gun. HE. Tweaking procedures. Number three gun set with HE. Pilot in sight. One high. One nine zero. Thirty. Next shot. Heading zero two zero. Roger. Heading zero two zero. Stroll underneath. Break left. Break left. The TV and I stayed in our seats, waiting for orders from the pilot. I got it. Fire suppression number three. Roger, fire suppression three. I'm gonna dive her down, see if we can get this fire out. It's not working. The pilot levels the aircraft. Fail, fail, everyone abandon ship. TV and I leave our seats in the booth and move toward the aft opening. Ten seconds later, the right wing falls off, placing the aircraft in a flat, clockwise spin. All the crew members experience tremendous centrifugal force, which pins them to the inside skin of the airplane. The aircraft is on fire, and there is an encompassing red haze everywhere. I feel the heat surrounding me building, but I'm protected to some degree by the flight suit I'm wearing. I can't move my hands, my legs, or my head because of the centrifugal force I'm experiencing but I can see the black, shadowy figures of my fellow crew members who are pinned to the inner skin of the aircraft. There's nothing I can do to escape certain death. Inexplicably, I, I feel a total peace with myself as I accept my fate. I think that no man could meet eternity with better company. Then the plane explodes. 
The red haze that I observed turns bright white and then black. My next conscious thought is that I feel much cooler. I have no sense of falling. With the light emanating from the burning aircraft, I see the trees coming quickly at me and I realize that I am falling. I need to use my parachute. I pull the D-ring and the parachute inflates. Less than five seconds later, I penetrate the top leaves and branches of the forested jungle below me. I follow the techniques I was taught in survival school for tree penetration parachute landings. When I come to a stop, as my parachute is hung up in the trees, I can see the ground about three feet below me. I hit the quick release and I fall to the ground. I am alone in the Osho Valley, the most dangerous place in South Vietnam. Of the 15-man crew, there were only three survivors. After the missile hit, the infrared operator and the Black Crow operator got up and left the booth. The TV operator and myself were still sitting in our seats in the booth, awaiting orders from the pilot who was sitting right seat because he was an instructor pilot giving a student ride to the gentleman in the left seat. They got out of the booth and I heard the pilot say to the flight engineer, I'm going to dive the airplane in order to try and put out the fire, give me fire suppression number three. So while the engineer was applying fire suppression number three, the pilot put the plane in a steep dive in order to put out the flames, which did not work. Uh, he pulled up a couple thousand feet later and looked out the right side and saw that it was hopeless. And that's when he yelled, abandon ship, abandon ship, bail, bail. And that's the last words I heard. He was my hoochmate. That's the last words I heard from him. I knew I was going to die because I couldn't move. I couldn't get out, couldn't get out to, to parachute. And I look around and I see the men that I'm going to share eternity with. You couldn't ask for better company. They were my crew members and my squadron mates. And at that moment, I just accepted my fate. And just before the plane exploded, I felt this enormous wave of peace. I had no other way to explain it. My last conscious thought before the plane exploded was something out of Tolkien's trilogy when the ring goes into the fire and Samwise and Frodo making their way out of Mount Uradum. They find a little island away from the, the sea of lava. They're holding hands and Frodo says to Samwise, I am glad you're with me here at the end of all things. That was my last conscious thought when the plane exploded. The only sense I had of it, everything went white and then everything went black. And I, I'm sure I was unconscious. My first awareness that I was no longer in the airplane is I felt cooler. I wasn't hot anymore. I had no sensation of falling. I looked around me and I could see the, the trees coming up at me from the light of the burning airplane. So I reached over to the, my right side and pulled the D-ring, which inflated my, my chute, parachute. And that chute opened less than five seconds before I hit the trees, which was fortuitous because the enemy never saw the chute. And I, I landed among the trees and I used my tree penetrating technique that they taught us in survival school to get on the ground. You know, I got on the ground some five or ten minutes later and I look around 
and I'm on the floor of the Oshawa Valley, the place you really don't want to be, and I'm all alone. And that, that was really scary. The first thing I had to do was find a hiding spot because I don't know how much the enemy saw or didn't see. And I look around and I found a very large tree that had elevated roots. In survival school, they teach you not to make a silhouette at night. That's very, very important. So I tunneled my way underneath the, the roots of the tree and I knew I would not make a silhouette, at least for the night. And I waited, once I was in where, where I was safe, I pulled out my survival radio. It's automatically tuned to the emergency frequency 243.0. And I listened and Spectre 1-1 Delta was already on, on, on the radio. That was a TV operator. And I waited until he was done. And then I, I called the night owl who was escorting us. He's a, that's an F-4 Phantom pilot. And let him know that I was in my hiding spot awaiting instructions. And that was a little before nine o'clock in the evening by the time I made that contact with him. I had to take off my wristwatch and I was also bleeding from my neck because some shrapnel hit my right side of my neck. Uh, they give you a tube of camouflage uh, uh, paint, I guess, and you put it all over your face. It also contains a coagulant. So I used that on my face and my neck to cut out any kind of reflection or anything like that. And that started the longest night of my life. I called the Phantom Escort and he says, you're hiding, are you well hidden? I said, yes, sir. He says, we're gonna try and get you first light. First light's about 5.30 in the morning. He says, stay hidden. And I said, and then he said, come up every hour on the hour. So I, every hour I would come up, I would get on the frequency that he assigned and I would talk to him. And then through the night, the Phantom would leave and then he was replaced by an OV-10 which is a reconnaissance bird. His call sign was NAIL-44. He monitored my position for the next four or five hours. And after my two o'clock call to let him know I was okay, all of a sudden, the jungle got very quiet. Throughout the night, the light from the burning airplane gave me some light, but by, by 11 o'clock or 12, it was dark, very, very dark in the jungle. And jungle is a very, very noisy place. About two o'clock in the morning, the jungle got very quiet. That made me very, very nervous. And 10 minutes later, I heard the movement of the enemy moving both on either side of me, coming down from the top of the hill down toward the floor. I was about two thirds of the way up the hill, which is where they tell you to hide, by the way. And they passed easily inside of 10 feet from me, both sides of me. I had my 38 combat special not that's much of a weapon system uh, compared to what they were carrying, but I had it on my chest, and if one of those guys stuck his head in there, I would have fired a shot, because I knew they, they were gonna treat me very well as a prisoner. So I I called, when I heard them approaching, and I knew that they were very close, I quietly said into the microphone, and I had the, the earbuds as they can't hear the response, I said, fire on my position, they're all around me. And the nail bird told me to just keep quiet, that if you're well hidden, they'll pass you by. And I did what he said, and they passed me by. And about 10 minutes after they were past me going to the other side of the valley, because the only parachute they saw was, was the IO's parachute. And he was on the other side of the valley. So they were going to him. 
about 10 or 15 minutes after they passed by, the jungle got noisy again. And I'm here to tell you, the sweetest sound you will ever hear in this life is the sound of the jungle making its normal noises. Because the jungle knows when a predator is moving through. If the jungle is noisy, no predator. At 5.30 in the morning, uh, when we were supposed to get picked up, the F4s came through because there was so much anti-aircraft fire coming from the hills that they could not risk bringing a helicopter in. And I found out later, every F4, every Phantom Jet in Southeast Asia came to the Oshawa Valley to drop ordnance to, to su suppress the enemy fire. And they normally drop it at 6,000 feet. Well, I was about 1,000 to 1,500 feet above the floor of the valley. And I was watching the F4s go below my position to drop. They were dropping well inside of 500 feet from the ground. Uh, at those altitudes, that's a big risk for them. But they're much more accurate when they drop at such low altitudes. And we watched every F-4 in Southeast Asia participate in our rescue. Because in the United States Air Force, we don't leave anybody behind. It took them three hours to suppress the enemy fire with all that firepower. So at 8.30, the um, chopper ended. It was an HH-53 Super Jolly. Entered the down zone where we were. And the first one he picked up was the TV operator because he was injured. He had a broken leg. He needed pararescue to help him into the harness. And then I was next. So they, they asked you to come out of your hiding spot, which I did. I went into a clearing and you open up your flight suit and you show them a lot of white skin or black skin. You have special instructions for Asian Americans so they know who you are. You're not setting them up for an ambush. And they drop a tree penetrator to you. The tree penetrator has got a seat which folds out and a strap that goes around around your waist. And then you hold on to it and it's got a, a metal cable which goes up to the helicopter. And as soon as you're secure, you yank on the on the cable three times and they start pulling you up and slowly till they get you past the trees. Once you pass the trees, that chopper immediately goes to 6,000 feet. I'm, I'm, I'm hanging out there. <laughs> and, and people are shooting at us. And the reason they want 6,000 feet is because that's above where small arms can be affected. As he's going up the 6,000 feet, he's retracting the cable, bringing you up. Finally, you get even with the open door on the right side of the uh, helicopter. What the pararescue guy does, he grabs you and he swings you away from the chopper. So you swing out. And then as you swing back in, he releases the cable and it took three bounces on the floor holding on to that tree penetrator for dear life because I have no parachute now. The third bounce, I came to a stop and the pararescue guy, he pats you on the shoulder, which means you, you can release your death grip on this tree penetrator, which I did. It is, you are so happy, it is beyond there are no words. There are no words to explain how happy you are. Because as soon as he did that, I stood up, and for the only time in my life, I kissed a man on the cheek. As a matter of fact, I went into rescue five years later, and I ran into that pararescue guy. And I asked him, was I the only one that ever kissed him? He said, no, about half the guys do. After they picked me up, then they got the IO, who was across the valley, and they picked him up. And they took me into the hospital and took all my clothes. They gave me blue pajamas. Then the, the medics 
came in and started pulling insects out of my groin and, and my uh, armpit area. Uh, it was not a pleasant experience. At any rate, it was um, about one o'clock in the afternoon, a two-star general comes in to say hello to us and says well, the a TV operator could not go back with us because he had the broken leg. He was going to be aerovac to Clark Air Base in the Philippines. But the IO and myself were allowed to go back on his airplane to Uban Rajatani, which we did. And everybody was out there to meet us. It was really beautiful. A couple hundred, the wing commander was there, the vice wing commander, my squadron commander. It was like a long lost family member coming back. It is, I can't explain it to you. you you're with your, 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 your guys. There are no families closer than what, what we were to each other. I mean, that's just the way it is. And they were great. But I committed a military faux pas. I didn't salute my, my wing commander. <laughs> I didn't get yelled at. <laughs> that happened on June 18th. I was rescued on the 19th. And I flew over 75 more combat rides. And I left in the third week of February, 1973. So I was there for another eight months. In that time, I became the flight examiner fire control officer, even though I was the most junior guy there. I had some other notable experiences after my tour in Vietnam. I went to rescue after teaching uh, celestial navigation for four and a half years at Maythra Air Force Base. I went to uh, rescue uh, first at Kadena Air Base in Japan, where I participated in a rescue mission, which was reported all around the world saving a pregnant lady and her unborn child, which I won't go to because it's just something else, but I'm very proud of that mission. And before I left the service, I went to Eglin Air Force Base to be part of the 55th Aerospace Rescue and Recovery Squadron. And my last active duty mission for the United States Air Force was participating in our aborted attempt to rescue our hostages in Iran in April 25th, 1980. I was sitting in Eastern Turkey sitting alert for that particular mission. We were airplane alert, so that meant we sat in the airplane waiting for to go with two other helicopters and ourselves, you know, we, we were gonna refuel them if we guide them in there. I didn't get my charts for Iran until the night before. That's how guarded this thing was. So I didn't have a chance to even look them over. Finally, when those eight guys were killed on the desert floor, we were ordered out of Iran. And right before I left the Air Force, my squadron was called to a required briefing from a four-star general, the number two man in the United States Air Force, who was leaving the service because he, he was so disgusted with what happened in Iran. And he told us what happened. And his briefing, which was top secret, is in my, my book, Stormwriter. And that was my last active duty mission. And then finally, after leaving the Air Force, about a year and a half later, I joined air traffic control. And my first duty assignment was New York Center right after the strike. And so I got firsthand knowledge of what happened during the strike. So I've had a very eventful life after being shot down from Vietnam. To learn more about my story, you can read my book, Stormwriter, which is available at Amazon and other book places. And also you can go onto my website. You can find those links in the show's notes.